um, uh, several years back, I uh, was hosting a life group in our home, and uh, we were talking about the word justification. And we were trying to explain what it means. And there was a guy there who had just come back to the Lord recently. And um, somebody was trying to explain. And they say, justification means it, it, God makes it so that it's just as if you never sinned. And I said, well, yeah, that is part of justification, that your sins are paid for, that they're washed away. But it's actually more than that. It's that God declares you now righteous because of what Jesus did. So, and I, and I said to this guy, I said, take it this way, you probably have some debt. He said, yeah, I got a lot of debt. I said, me too. Uh, I said, what if Jeff Bezos came along and he said, I'm going to pay off all your debt? And he said, that'd be pretty cool. And I said, that'd be pretty cool, right? But, but if he pays off all your debt, you're just back up to zero, which would be awesome. And you, you, that'd be enough to be excited about. But what if he said, I'm not only going to pay off your debt, I'm going to put your name on all of my accounts. So that you can draw on my checking account, my savings account, my stocks, bonds, well, you, know, you know, you own Amazon or whatever. You know, like, like you got a lot of money. What would that be like? He said, that'd be pretty cool. I said, well, here's what happens in justification. God says, I am going to declare you righteous, which means I'm going to wipe out all your debts, but I'm going to take all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all the times he did it right, and I'm going to credit it to your account so that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. And this young man said, that's freaking awesome. <laughs> Only he didn't say freaking. He said another word. And, and I was just about to say, now listen, bro, I, I don't know if you know this or not, you know, it, uh, you know, but dropping the F-bomb in the pastor's living room, it, you know, it's frowned upon. I, I, you know, I didn't know, I, you know, I was just about to say that when I just felt something on the inside say, keep your mouth shut because his response is a little closer to what yours should be. Now, I don't mean, I didn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't saying, telling me to drop the F-bomb. But the point is, sometimes some of us have been walking with Jesus for a while. We're so familiar with the gospel, it doesn't freak us out anymore. And if we'll stop and go, wait a second, do you realize what the gospel says? Christ's righteousness has been accredited to my account. That ought to blow you away. But the danger is sometimes we begin familiar with it. Last week, we started this message out of Mark chapter 6, where we looked at when Jesus came back to Nazareth, this hometown, and at first they're amazed, but then they go, wait a second, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't his brothers over here and his sisters over here? And then he, it says, and they were offended by him because of their familiarity. And because of that, look at verse 5 of Mark chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. It says, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. We began talking about this danger of familiarity and lack of faith last week. And we said the antidote to the danger of familiarity is that we stand in awe of God. That we're blown away by the gospel. So I want to keep going with that this week. And I want to ask three questions of this being in awe of God. Number one, what is awe? Number two, why should we be in awe? And number three, what are the results of awe? Or another way to say that third one, what happens when we fear the Lord? So let's look at these three very quickly. Number one, what is awe? If you were to look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, which is the definitive dictionary of the English language, it says definition one is immediate and active fear, terror, or dread. 
Now, and then as soon as that, it says that, right after it, it says obsolete, <laughs> meaning people don't use it that way, but that's where it started. The word awe originally meant that. It was this fear or terror or dread, and it now means um, dread mingled with veneration or reverential or respectful fear, profound reverence in the, supreme, uh, the presence of supreme authority, the feeling of solemn and reverential wonder inspired by what is terribly majestic. Here's my short definition of the word awe. Awe is what takes your breath away. A number of years ago, Marlene and I lived in Central Asia. And on one occasion, we were going to, uh, a friend of mine and I were going to go pick up another guy who was coming into the country. And we had to fly from one city in, in where we were in Central Asia to another city and then drive across the border into another country in another city to pick him up and come back. And as we do, with that, that country is 93% mountainous and three mountain chains run into each other and it's very formidable mountains. And as we took off, we were in uh, the old Soviet airlines, uh, the Aeroflot. Now, those of you who have never had the blessing of flying an Aeroflot back in the Soviet era, you have missed an experience in life, let me just tell you. Uh, so it, it, great pilots, but they, it, it's very herky-jerky. So we, so we take off, it's in a small plane, and we come up, and you got to go up really fast because these mountains are right around the airline, the airway. And, and when you come up, the pilot banked really hard over this mountain, and when he did, I saw down there is snow-capped mountains, and way up, I don't know what the elevation was, but way up there was a lake. Not down where we were living, but way up in the mountains. We have, there's this lake with the bluest water I've ever seen in my life. It was the most beautiful scene I've ever seen. And literally, as we banked, I looked over and went, oh, God. Because instantly my mind went to God when I saw that kind of beauty. And I felt like the Lord said, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? It was, I saw something of God's creation and it led me to the creator. And it took my breath away. Paul David Tripp has written a book called Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And here's what he says, that you're going to be in awe of something. You were created for awe. Okay, you've been, awe is hardwired into you. And God created an awesome world so that we would turn to the creator and stand in awe of him. That's the point. Uh, Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So God's created an awesome world, and, and, and he's done that so that we would turn to the creator and stand in awe of him. The beauty of creation is designed to be a sign. And what does a sign do? A sign isn't there for itself. A sign points you to something beyond itself. And creation, according to the Bible, it's a sign to point us to the creator himself. John Calvin, the reformer, said it this way, there is not one little blade of grass... There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. Isn't that good? I wish I had written that. Every little blade of grass is there so that you would rejoice in your creator. Now that's very important that we stand in awe of God because whatever you are in awe of will shape your life. A number of years ago I read a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. It's, it's the one by Walter Isaacson's. And uh, uh, you, you may know da Vinci from, you know, Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa, uh, the Vitruvian Man, the Last Supper, or whatever. Uh, he was an incredible genius of art and science because, the historian says, he had a curious, passionate way that was always filled with wonder and awe. 
And, and then Da Vinci says, we, we could never, ever outgrow our wonder years or let our children do so. Here's the point that he was making. Da Vinci was in awe of nature, and that shaped his life. Because whatever you're in awe of will shape your life. That's why we need to be in awe of God. And let me just tell you, if you see God a little more nearly as he really is, you will stand in awe of him. If you can stand at all. Isaiah 6. Isaiah gets a picture of the Lord high and lifted up. And, and he's, he's like, woe is me. Revelation 1, John, who's the closest to Jesus, turns and he sees the glorified, risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus, and he falls down as though dead. When he sees a hundred million angels surrounding the throne, he is in awe. See, when we're not in awe of God, we're going to be in awe of something. And usually it's our problems. Usually if we're not in awe of God, we're going to be in awe of the, our gaze, our focus is going to be on all of our problems. And see, a lot of times we think we have a financial problem or a knowledge problem or a self-control problem or a parenting problem. And really we have an awe problem. Sometimes we're standing in awe of the wrong thing. Our eyes are focused on the wrong thing. And here's what Tripp says. He says, here's what we often do. We often replace vertical awe for horizontal addiction. See, if you're not in awe of God, you're going to be in awe of something. And whatever else that is, it's not going to satisfy your thirst. It's only going to make you more thirsty. It's only going to addict you. So here's the question. What are you in awe of today? Seriously, I want you to think about that. Just right now, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What, what, what takes your breath away? What, are, what, what do you say? That is awesome. What are we in awe of? That's real important because, you know, part of our call as disciples of Jesus Christ is to live so in awe of God, to, to give unbelievers a picture of Jesus and God that is so beautiful, that is so awesome that it takes their breath away. And part of the reason a lot of times that people aren't believers is because we've done a poor job of representing who Jesus is. Because I promise you, if they saw the real Jesus, they would be in awe. So that's, what, that's number one. What is all? Number two, why should we be in all? Now, we don't have time to do it, but if we had time to go on a panoramic sort of scan of Scripture from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, we would discover that often there are two things in Scripture that we are told to stand in awe of. They are God's greatness and God's goodness. Okay, first of all, his greatness is his stunning splendor, it's his glory, his awesome power, his transcendence, his majesty, his uniqueness. There is no other God above him or beside him. I, have, I got a buddy, a pastor buddy, his name is Milton, in, in, in the One City, One Church prayer group. We pray every month, and, and when Milton gets going, I love this, he gets going, he goes, you God all by yourself. There's no other God above him. He alone rules. Isaiah said he's the first and he's the last. There are no other gods. He alone is God. So that's his greatness, but there's also his goodness. And, and we're supposed to be in awe of his goodness. And his goodness is his moral character. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. It's the beauty of his personhood. And it's demonstrated to us in his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his provision. I could go all day with this. We should be in awe of his greatness and his goodness in two particular things, actually. Number one, in creation, and number two, in redemption. 
See, when you see creation, you ought to be in awe that God is good and God is great. Let me kind of try to unpack that. See, sometimes people will ask me, hey, what do you think is the best evidence for the existence of God? And I think there's two or three really good uh, arguments that are really good evidence for the existence of God. And one of them is called the Goldilocks argument, okay, uh, also known as fine-tuning. And you, you guys know Goldilocks, you know, uh, this bed is too hard, this bed is too soft, this one's just right, you know, or is the porridge too hot or too cold and this one's just right. Well, the, the Goldilocks or fine-tuning argument says that for life to exist at all, there had to be a number of things that had to be just right for life to emerge and be sustained in creation. And when I say just right, I mean just right. I'm no physicist. I'm a pastor. But Hugh Ross is a physicist, and he wrote a book called The Creator and the Cosmos. And he's got a whole chapter on a just right universe. And what he talks about is there's sort of, there's these fundamental forces of nature, cosmic constants that balance each other in finely tuned ways. And if they're off just in the littlest of bit, there's no life. So, for example, he says, uh, and just hang with me through this sentence, okay? And imagine me saying this sentence. Um, If the ratio of the electromagnetic force to the gravitational force were off by even, are you ready for this? One in 10 to the 37th power, life could not exist. Now, just think how finely tuned that is. not, Not 1%, not 1 out of 100, 1 in 10 to the 37th power. And some of you are thinking, okay, would that be a lot? Here's one in 10. Here's the probability of one in 10 to the 37th power. Take a dime. You guys know what a dime is? Do y'all remember we used to carry money in our pocket? Okay, so a dime, okay, dime, real little. Take, take dimes, fill up all of the whole entire North America. The landmass of North America, fill it up with dimes all the way up to the height of the moon, which, as a reminder, is 238,900 miles, give or take a couple. Okay, are you with me? The landmass of North America stacked in dimes up to the moon. Now, do that for another thousand continents the size of North America. With diamond, with, with diamonds, with dimes stacked all the way to the moon, take one dime, put a red X on it, throw it in the middle, shake it all up. Then now take your friend who's been, uh, you know, has been, has had his eyes closed the whole time, you know, has been blindfolded. Take them out and randomly let them walk around on those thousand continents with dimes stacked up to the moon. And the first one they reach in and pick up is the one with an X on it. That's the same probability as one in 10 to the 37th power. Feel free to gasp. Now, this is the, I mean, this is like crazy. This is so crazy that it encouraged the late Stephen Hawking, who was not a believer, to say, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers. The remarkable fact is that these numbers seem to have been finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. This is a non-believer who says, it's almost like somebody did this on purpose. 
And now that's just one variable, okay? That's just one variable. But there isn't just one variable that had to be just right. Now, when Carl Sagan did his whole thing on the cosmos back in the late 70s, you know, he said there's two things that had to be just right for life to exist. So he postulated there could be tons of planets that have life because there's only two things that have to exist. We now know he was absolutely wrong. Actually, there are now, physicists say, at least, are you ready for this? 140 things that have to be precisely just right for life to exist. And the probability on average for each of those is 1 in 10 to the 40th power. That's the average. So things like the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the amount of carbon in the universe. If there was more, we'd be in trouble. If there was less, we wouldn't exist. Hydrogen, if there was too much hydrogen, no life. Too little, no life. Uh, The size of the earth, the location of the earth, the size of Jupiter. Did you know this? If Jupiter was smaller than it is, we'd all be dead. It's so big, the gravitational pull protects us from asteroids coming through our solar system. It has to be precisely the size it is, precisely the distance from us that it is. The size of the moon, the distance of the moon. I could keep going on. There's 140 things, so many that physicist Freeman Dyson says, it's as if the universe saw us coming. You think? 140 different variables had to be just right. And if any of them were off by just, not 1%, see, that would be impressive. If I said, hey, there's 140 things, and if even just one of them is off 1%, that's 1 in 100, we're all dead. But it's not that. It's 1 in 10 to the 40th power. So to get the odds of life accidentally existing in our universe, here's what you got to do. You got to multiply 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to 140 times. You you still aren't getting this. Uh, Otherwise, you'd be like, whoa. Okay, so so I'm going to give you an example of this. Thank you. So I got some fuzzy dice. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Pastor Sam, where did you get those? Uh, I took these out of Pastor Phil's car. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm only playing. It's not really. He, he didn't have them in his car. He had them in his office. No, he did. I'm just kidding. Um, everybody loves Phil, and I got to get him back when I can. Okay. Um, all right. So, so let's say, what are, let me ask you a question. This is a six-sided dice. What are the odds I'm going to roll a three right now? One in six. So I'll do that, and oh, my goodness, it was three. Wow. Um, okay, so it's one in six on a regular dice, okay? One in six that I'm gonna roll a three. What is the odds I'm gonna roll two threes in a row? One in six times one in six, right? One in 36. Or right, what's the percentage of chance I'm gonna roll three in a row? It's one in 216. What's the chance I'm gonna roll six of them in a row without another number? It's, it's, it's a lot. It's, I, I, did, I did the math for you. It's one in 46,656, okay? One in 46,656. Now, let's say this is not going to happen because it can't happen. We have these checks and balances in place. But let's say that I call the elders tomorrow and I say, hey, dudes, tell you what, I was on my way to Mexico. I stopped over in Vegas and um, I took all the savings from the church and this week's offering. Uh, and I brought it with me. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to take it to the table and I'm going to put it all down. I'm going to roll six ones in a row. Not going to happen. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah Flout. Um, uh, Yeah, it's not good. What do you think the elders are going to say? Um, (laughs) yeah, I I know the elders. They're going to say more than um, let me tell you that. Um, They're going to say more than that. 
they're probably going to say, hey, we really love you, Tim, but we don't think that's a good idea. And I'll say, wait, but look, the odds are only one in 46,656. But then what if I then go to the table and I, and I put all that money down and, and the people at Vegas, I'm going I'm to row six ones in a row and it, the odds are one in 46,656 and I actually do it. What are the people in Vegas going to say? Cheating? They're going to think, they're gonna think, hey, somebody monkeyed with those dice. Hey, it's only one in 46,656. They're going to assume that I was cheating, that I weighted the dice, because all of a sudden on the one time that you put all the church's money down, you got six of them in a row. Now, if you would, that would be a reasonable conclusion. If you would conclude that on the odds of one in 46,656, then what should you conclude on the probability that the universe accidentally became life-permitting is one in 10 to the 40th power times one in 10 to the 40th power times 140 times? It is reasonable to assume that there is some sort of incredible intelligent mind behind the universe. And it seems, at least to me, it seems unreasonable to assume the opposite, that we're all a product of accident, random chance. We got lucky. I mean, really lucky. In fact, it occurs to me it takes almost more faith to believe that the universe accidentally came in random chance than to believe there's an intelligent mind. There is a God behind the universe. In fact, you guys, the late Christopher Hitchens, who's a famous atheist. In fact, he didn't even call himself an atheist. He called himself an anti-theist. He believed belief in God was dangerous. And he was on a mission to eradicate faith in God. When he was asked, what do you think the other side's best argument was? He said, the fine-tuning argument. And then he said, we all say that. Meaning all of his friends who are known as the four horsemen of the new atheism. He said, we all say that that's the best argument. And that led Fred Hoyle, a skeptic, to write, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. The numbers that one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Self-proclaimed agnostic and, and famous physicist Robert Yastro put it this way, for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. The psalmist put it more simply, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Listen, our existence is a statistical and scientific virtual impossibility, and yet here we are. Not only here, but talking about the fact we exist. We're conscious. Hey, can miracles happen? Man, a very conservative scientific answer is, you are one. You are one. I got to move on. That, that should put you in awe. Right? You ought to see that and go, whoa, God. If you want to read more about that, because i got to move on, uh, just a couple of books I would commend to you. Eric Metaxas wrote a book called Is Atheism Dead? And about three chapters is on the fine-tuning argument. It's a pop-level, more simple treatment. He's kind of a funny writer. 
sometimes overstates his case, but that's part of his charm. Uh, the other one is uh, by Stephen Meyer called Return of the God Hypothesis. Stephen Meyer is a PhD from Cambridge. Cambridge is a little school across the pond. You may have heard of it. Um, uh, he has a PhD from there, and he writes about the fine-tuning argument. So if you want to study more, you can look at that. So here's my point. Fine-tuning should make us stand in awe, and that should lead us to God. I'm going to throw up a picture of two things very quickly here. You'll notice the picture on the left is a, is a stained glass window. And the design of it, the one on the right, is a view along the axis of the DNA, the double helix of DNA. Now, if you were to walk into church building and look up and see that stained glass window in the top, you would probably assume that that was designed by some artist and built by some craftsman, wouldn't you? In other words, you probably wouldn't think that, hey, there was a glass factory and something made it explode and that was the result. You probably wouldn't assume that. But you look at the DNA, far more intricate. Why would we think that just happened by random chance? Now, I will tell you, that blows me away. I, I stand in awe of that when I see those two pictures side by side. really blows me away. But I'm going to show you a picture that blows me away more than that. And it's that picture. I see the goodness of God and the greatness of God in redemption in the gospel that says God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I see the greatness of God in that. I see the grace of God, the goodness of God in that. And you guys, God help us. God help us if the cross ever gets old to us. God help us if we get so familiar we're not blown away by his goodness to come for us. Third and finally, third question, what are the results of all? Now, to get at the result of all, you kind of have to look at another phrase in Scripture, which uh, is not... It's not 100% synonymous with awe, it sort of is, but it's not completely, and it, it all occurs a lot in the Bible, but this concept occurs far more, and it's broader, and it's further reaching. It is the fear of the Lord. Now, that phrase is confusing for a lot of people because there are a lot of scriptures that refer to fear as bad, right? So like 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love, and perfect love casts out fear. 2 Timothy 1, God's not given us a spirit of fear. Hebrews 2, Jesus freed us from the fear of death. So what's up? Well, I think if you want to get uh, uh, the key to understanding this is the story of Moses. Remember, Moses is leading. Uh, God is rescuing the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and they're going across, and they're at Mount Sinai, and he goes up on the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's smoke, and there's trumpets, and, and the people go, I tell you what, Moses, you go up there and talk to God, and come back here and tell us what he said, because that's terrifying. You remember what Moses said? Exodus 20, 20, he said this, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, this is a weird thing. Don't be afraid. God's come so that you'll be afraid. What? Another way to say that is those who have the fear of the Lord are not afraid. That still can be confusing. 
think of it this way. There is good fear and there is bad fear. There is a fear that makes you cower and run away from God, and that is bad. And then there is a fear that pushes you into God that makes you run to God. Bad fear is the result of sin, and it's a work of the devil. Good fear is a work of the Spirit. It draws us into God. God it, good fear doesn't say, hey, God is hazardous. It says God is glorious. See, the fear of the Lord is when God is more treasured, he's more valued, he's more celebrated than anything else in the world in your life. That's when you have the fear of the Lord. You, you, God is more treasured, more valued, more celebrated than anything. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. To fear the Lord is to be terrified to be away from him. If you've got the fear of the Lord, you're like, listen, I, I ain't no way I'm going to be away from the Lord. I'm terrified of that idea. So you would do what? You venerate, you honor, you respect, you revere, you are in awe of God more than anything or anyone else in the universe. And when you do that, when you have the fear of the Lord, there are certain things that happen. So I'm just going to run through these scriptures. You just write down the reference of them, okay? And then this would be a great Bible study this week to just study the fear of the Lord. Uh, I'll give you an example. Isaiah 33, 5 says this. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And look at the next phrase. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. What's the treasure? It's justice, righteousness. It's, it's the fact he's the foundation for our time. It's salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. What's the key to all of that? The fear of the Lord. And in fact, the Hebrew here can actually go a couple ways. Uh, the ESV translates it, the fear of the Lord is this treasure. Wow. That goes along with other scriptures, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Here's another one. This verse will take your breath away. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Do you see? That verse doesn't promise friendship for everybody. God wants to be friends with those who fear him. And have you ever known this? Friends will tell their friends stuff they don't tell anybody else. I mean, don't look at me like that. Like, I know y'all do that. You'll tell your friends things you don't tell anybody else. You know what? God's like that too. It says he reveals his covenant to those who fear. He's friends with those who fear him. The NIV translates it, because that's the ESV. The NIV translates it, the Lord confides in those who fear him. And he, revelation is, is reserved for those who fear God. He says, I will tell you about me. I'm going to tell you about my covenant. You're going to get insight that you never had before because you fear me. He doesn't promise to reveal himself to everybody. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We started at the beginning of the year with this text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And the Greek word is phobos. It's fear. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And I was just talking about this text with Jan at the school supply giveaway this on, on Wednesday night. Uh, and we were just talking about perhaps there's a progression here. They devoted themselves to these four things, and that meant everybody was in awe, and therefore miracles happened. Because in all the texts I just read, there's a connection between the fear of God and the acts of God in our world. Could it be, I'm just wondering, 
Could it be we don't see more miracles and more acts of God because we lack the fear of the Lord? We fear other things and other people more than we fear the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you should regard as holy. He is the one you're to fear. Do you know what that verse says? It says the fear of the Lord frees us from every other fear. Michael Reeves wrote a book called Rejoice and Tremble. uh, And and the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. Uh, Excellent book. I read probably 75% of it in one sitting this week. Here's what he writes. Here is truth for every Christian who needs the strength to rise above his or her anxieties or who needs the strength to pursue an unpopular but righteous course. The fear of the Lord is the only fear that imparts strength. Think about that. Every other fear will suck your strength away from you. The fear of the Lord gives you strength. And then he writes, this means that our sinful fears cannot be nursed or left to fester. We must fight fear with fear. You see what he's saying there? You fight fear with, it means you replace whatever fear you have with the fear of the Lord. And Michael Reeves has this great analogy. He says, the fear of the Lord is like Aaron's staff. Remember that the magicians in, in, in Egypt, the Egyptian magicians, they could copy, they could throw down their staff and it turned into a snake too. But Aaron threw his down and his snake ate up all the other ones. The fear of the Lord is like that with every other fear. You had the fear of the Lord, it eats up all the rest of them. Matthew 10 verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather... Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus speaking. But we have illustration of that. You've, you remember a number of months ago I told you the story of two bishops during the English Reformation, Latimer and Ridley, and they wouldn't renounce their faith, and so they were burned at the stake. And as they were being burned, uh, Ridley cried out in pain, and Latimer said he could be heard through the flames by people around. He said, play the man, Master Ridley. For tonight you shall light such a fire in all of England that shall never be quenched. And when I told that story a few months ago, I was talking about the fact that sometimes we feel bad, we feel sorry for ourselves if somebody says something nasty on social media. And here they are being burned at the stake, and what's their attitude? We win! Amen. We're, take, we're lighting a fire! Now, that was the story, and that's what I was talking about. But before that, this part of the story that I didn't tell, before that, uh, Latimer had been asked to preach before the king on the king's birthday. This is Henry VIII. And he came to preach, and it was, a, it, was, um, it was protocol that you would give a gift to the king on his birthday. So uh, the bishop, Latimer, he gave the king a pocket handkerchief, which was embroidered with the words, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. <laughs> this would not be the way to win friends and influence people especially the king. And then he got up to preach that day and he preached against lust. And uh, the historian says, and I quote, he delivered himself with tremendous force, not forgetting or abridging the personal application. (laughs) And as a result, the king got upset. But the king said, I'm gonna give you one chance. Next week when you preach, you should, you must apologize for what you said. And uh, uh, Latimer said, Uh, okay, I appreciate you being merciful to me. I'll apologize next week. So he gets up the next week and he begins his sermon with speaking to himself. And this is what he said, and I quote, Hugh Latimer, 
Thou art this day to preach before the high and mighty Prince Henry, King of Great Britain and France. If thou sayest one word that displeases his majesty, he will take thy head off. Therefore, mind where you are. And then the very next sentence. Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the Lord God Almighty, who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so, therefore, tell the king the truth outright. And he did so. His performance, the historian says, was equal to his resolution. And actually, the king respected him for it, for a little while anyway. And then he burned him at the stake. But here's the point. Here's the point. The fear of God set him free from every other fear. You want to have courage? Do you want to live fearlessly? This is how you do it. The fear of the Lord will set you free from every other fear. And finally, it'll not only do that, but the fear of the Lord will allow us to experience more of the presence of God. Now look, in the Bible, there, and I'll just say this very quickly, there's two ways that the presence of God is referred to in the Bible. One is his omnipresence, that he's everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. Even the darkness cannot hide me. It'll be like light to you. So David just said, God's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go. He's not. So there's omnipresence. But there's also another way scripture refers to presence, and it's that God is often revealing his presence or manifesting his presence so that we see or feel or hear it or whatever. So, for example, in Luke chapter 5, it says the power of the Lord was present to heal. So, a lot of times when Scripture says the Lord was present, it means he was present, to, it was manifested, right? And so, these Scriptures I've just been going through, what they imply is the fear of the Lord puts us in a place to experience the manifested presence of God. Some, this will be my last illustration, but so, unless I think of another one. Uh, Sometimes when I'm preparing a message, I will not only read that, you know, I'm reading my, the text of Scripture, and then I'm reading, you know, commentaries and other writers, and then I also listen to what other people have said. And so this week I'm driving down the road, and I listen to a, fear, a podcast on the fear of the Lord by John Bevere. And he, and he says that he used to really struggle to feel and sense the presence of God, but he's learned that if he would just stop and start meditating on the majesty of God, the awesomeness of God, if he just start, start reciting these scriptures about how good and awesome and powerful God is, that very quickly he just begins to sense God with him. And he tells a story uh, of going to Brazil. He had been asked to be the keynote speaker in a conference, a national conference in Brazil. And he flew in. They put him up at a super nice hotel. They had a driver come pick him up. They brought him to the, the time he was going to speak. The, there was cars lined up outside the auditorium. It was packed. They went in. They had the best worship leaders in all of Brazil there. And they were playing the music. And the music was perfect, you know. Every note was perfect. It was, per you know, the sound was awesome. And he gets in there and he said, I did not feel one ounce of the presence of God. And he's like, what is happening? What, what is going on? And he looks out and he notices the people are like, a lot of people are standing there like this to the music or got their hands in their pocket. A bunch of people are just kind of talking with each other. You know, people are walking in and out the door, going to the bathroom, coming back, just walking around, not paying attention. And he goes from being what's going on to being a little bit irritated to actually getting mad, which, you know, may not have been the Holy Ghost, but, you know, he's, he's getting angry that this is all happening, and the worship time is an hour long, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, listen, you think we got long services. Y'all don't know nothing. 
they got some long services in other places. And, and, and so um, praise and worship was an hour, and he just didn't feel nothing. And then when they introduced him, he came up to the platform. He was so upset, he just looked at everybody <laughs> for like a minute. And then he said, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had a friend and you had something deep on your heart you wanted to share with that friend and you started talking to them and they had their arms crossed and they just, while you're talking, they start talking to somebody else and they go to the bathroom while you're talking, would you want to keep talking to that person? And the crowd says, no. And he said, what if you go over to somebody's house and and you knock on the door, they open the door and you go, hey, and they go, oh, it's you again. And they turn around and walk back. Are you going to want to open up your heart and reveal yourself to them? And they said, no. And then he proceeded to preach on the fear of the Lord for 75 minutes. Some of you think this sermon is long. That's long, 75 minutes. And for 75 minutes, he preached on the fear of the Lord. And when he got to the end, he says, now who wants to repent of your lack of the fear of the Lord? 75% of the people stood on their feet. And in that moment, he said he felt the presence of God in that place. He led them in a prayer of repentance. They prayed that prayer, and a loud wind went through the auditorium, so loud you couldn't hear the music. And then a lot of other things happened as a result of that. Here's my point. There is a connection between our fear of the Lord and our experience of him. The manifested presence of God is experienced where he is revered where he is held in awe. So I want more of the experience of God. Don't you? Then we need to live in the awe of Jesus and embrace the fear of the Lord because I want to see God do the miraculous.